0: There's a lot of talk about holiness amongst uh, religious people, and definitions vary greatly depending on what religious community you grew up in. Um, Let me ask you a question Is it our job to make the world holy? Regarding the idea that Christians ought to sell their morals to the world, one author put it this way, our responsibility is not to moralize the unconverted, it's to convert the immoral. Our responsibility is redemptive, not political. We do not have a moral agenda, we have a redemptive agenda, and none of us should be surprised that we couldn't reform the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan himself. Our message is not morality. It's never been morality. Our message is redemption. That has always been and always will be the pure and true message of the church. And I hope that people who have literally spent their time and millions upon millions of dollars trying to moralize the unconverted will now turn their attention to trying to convert the immoral, end quote. Certainly Christians can come off as busy buddies, can they not? commenting on other people's lives. I'm not saying there's room for a compromise for any individual believer, but what should be our approach towards those who are not believers, who don't accept a biblical worldview? Uh, Over, it was about 34 years ago, I guess it would be, um, Janet and I were at the mall for one of the first times that we were out in public after having our twins. So we had four kids, three and under, had a double stroller, um, and uh, one lady came up to me at the mall and scolded me for what I was putting my wife through, as if I locked her in a cage and forced her to have children. So I wrestled her to the ground, took her purse, and then I felt a lot better after that. Such actions, I think, resemble Christians who lose perspective by leaving the gospel in the dust to align others to a cultural philosophy, or a political view. And actually, such ways resemble more the Pharisees than it does believers in the Bible. Paul is concerned with genuine holiness, a life separated from the world's ideology and behavior. And just as a way of recap. Verses 1 through 16, uh, he's spoken about the need to put our focus upon the grace of Christ in verse 13. He says to put our mind upon Christ, who is our future hope. He tells them not to take on the world's thinking in behavior and behavior in verses 14, and re- remember that you are bound to the will of the heavenly Father as his children. In verses 15 and 16, we're to prize holiness because it is consistent with God's character. Be holy for I am holy. God is the model and the source of holiness. So instead of choosing a cultural or or political or, or religious definition of holiness, we're to set our minds upon the holiness of God as he defines it. Now, it's interesting to me that Peter is writing to a people who've been persecuted and it almost seems like an odd message. Why would you be encouraging people who are being persecuted for their faith and remember, you know, killed, chased down, losing their jobs, really persecuted? Why are you talking about holiness? Why would that matter? Well, because I think, like, John the Baptist, when he was in jail, had all kinds of doubts, that when people are being persecuted, they too can have a lot of doubts. They might begin to lose their worth because they've lost their possessions. Uh, They feel like they can't accomplish any of their aspirations, and they can get, frankly, depressed. Peter's reminding them to stay on mission as the people of God, that they have worth that they have purpose, and that is to continue to be the holy people that God has called them to be. And remember, no matter what you do as a believer, living as a holy, called people of God is your highest mission. Now think about it. People can take your possessions. They can take your loved ones. They can take your job. They can take your dignity from you, but they can never strip from you your holy calling as a child of God. So let's discover some of these other insights into holiness as we look at verses 17 through 21. Let's all stand. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile Teach us about holiness, make it a part of us. Lord, there's not a person in here who hasn't sinned. We all have sinned, we've sinned today. Maybe we've sinned just a minute ago. Sin is a part of our experience but so is being declared righteous by you because of the shed blood of Christ. We are so prone to look at righteousness strictly through our performance, and yet your grace is poured upon us through our position in Christ. May we resemble that position. May we take on the nature that you have given us in Christ. May as we sin, repent quickly. May your grace continue to be in operation in our lives and, and give us all that we need to serve you with obedience. We thank you for that pleasure. Lord, it's not, a, it's not a heavy yoke because you've been so good to us. And press that upon our hearts and minds today so that our obedience can be out of loving hearts. Thank you for these, my brothers and sisters. Bless them, encourage them, admonish, challenge them. May they walk out of here today with a greater faith, greater intent to live as holy people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And if you call him in as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed... Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Because of the relationship that we enjoy with God as our Father, we are able to give him the proper um, respect and all that he deserves, especially in light of being on earth in a temporary fashion. We're to prepare for our eternal home. When we read about God judging impartially, Christians typically fall into two extremes when it comes to the judgment of God. They will tout eternal security and give the impression that when we sin, there is little or no consequence to that sin or some say that believers can only go so far before their salvation is taken from them because of gross negligence both sides have some who will quote their verses set up their straw men to dismantle the opponent's arguments consider the truth of 1 peter 1:17 The plain rendering is that fear of God is good and healthy when it reveres God and it leads to heartfelt obedience. So whatever interpretation we make, it has to stay true with that. Let us notice that this judgment has to do with our deeds and it has nothing to do with our salvation. When we trusted Christ, God forgave our sins, and declared us as righteous in his Son. Hebrews says in chapter 10, or excuse me, Romans says in chapter 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him through the wrath of God. So when you're justified, you are declared righteous by God, and that's because of the blood of Christ. And then in Hebrews 10, verses 12, 14, and 17, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I ask you if, We are declared righteous by God. How can anyone else legitimately declare us unrighteous? This does not mean that sins are not committed, but all these sins are ransomed. We are ransomed. They're redeemed because of the blood of Christ. If for all time sin is covered by the sacrifice of Christ, then how can some sin not be covered? If he says he remembers our sins no more, how can he now remember our sin? Whatever this passage means, speaking of 1 Peter 1.17, it does not refer to judgment of sin as it pertains to salvation because clearly those things are covered under the blood of Christ. When the Lord returns, the other side of the coin, is that there's going to be something called the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, 12 says, all believers will give an account of themselves before God. We may not like it, it may be uncomfortable, but there it stands. 2 Corinthians 5 says, so whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. At issue is the stewardship of our time, treasure, and talent on this earth for the kingdom of God. When I see our church give and serve so generously, it excites me because I know you will be rewarded far beyond what we can imagine. It is counted to your account with a benefit exceeding anything that earth can give. That's exciting. Conversely, though, no Christian can get away with sin. God rewards it greatly, but no Christian gets away with sin. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We know that God disciplines his children who sin, as Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In addition to earthly discipline, There is the loss of rewards for the Christian who rebels against God and operates in the flesh. We read in 1 Corinthians, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work Each one is done. That fire speaks of the judgment of God. It's not hell. It's God's judgment that will burn up the things that were not done for Christ that were done in the flesh. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself shall be saved. But it's through the fire. That's the fire of God's judgment. And by the way, Peter says that he judges impartially. It literally means without face. In other words, God's judgment is not based on an outward appearance or pretense. All motives will be plain to him. For Samuel read, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the side of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord... Sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We are sober-minded because God is not going to judge us because of the, the size of our bank account, how many times we attended church, you know, how we look on the outside, the size of our church, but whether our heart was sincere in our service and love to Christ. So that's why the guy who maybe lovingly serves the missionary in some faraway country doesn't see many converts and others who, you know, has a lot of converts. If you serve faithfully, I believe God will reward that. Even though there aren't many converts for that. I cannot explain away these passages and think a Christian gets away with sin. That is not the testimony of scripture. I believe God disciplines his children and he rewards his children. I cannot explain away God's promises and limit the grace of God to only certain sins. The Bible teaches that salvation is of God and not my performance. And the minute you say that God takes it away, you put the focus on man, and his sin is greater than the grace of God. My performance does not affect my salvation, but it does impact my fellowship with God, the discipline I receive, and the rewards I lose. Because of these facts, I'm to approach God with a healthy fear and awe. That doesn't define all of my relationship, but it defines part of it with God. My father had a stare. He was in the Navy, and when I uh, watched, um, what's the Clint Eastwood movie where he's sitting out on the porch and has the, uh, I can't remember the name of it, where he, where he has the Oriental kid that he, Gran Torino, yes. That was my dad. <laughs> and my dad would always wear that T-shirt and, and khaki pants. And, you know, you just didn't give him any BS. He was, he was a tough guy, right? And when he gave you the stare, he didn't have to say anything. He just would give you the stare and you would melt, all right? And once you got whipped by his braided leather belt a couple times, you knew to listen, Right? Um, Some would probably call it abuse now. Call it what you want, but it worked. (laughs) All right? Um, My point is that that didn't define my dad all the time. He could have fun. He could tell jokes. We knew he loved us. He provided for us. But that was an aspect to the relationship. My time on earth is temporary. So I want to invest in millions of years in eternity by exhibiting faithfulness in the 70 or so years, God willing, that I'm here. God is not the man upstairs, or as one baseball player said, God is the great Yankee in the sky. The Old Testament scribe feared God so much that every time he had to write, The name Jehovah, he would have to wipe his pen, clean himself, and put on new clothes. We are to approach him with reverence and not be careless. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I know we want the pat on the back. We want the hug, and that's that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Now, he's always loving, but he also has this fearful aspect, which is a part I think it falls under the umbrella of love because it's for our good. It's for our great blessing to walk with them and not to walk by our passions. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Past religious traditions can often miss the mark of grace It happened with the Jews, and it happens now with evangelicals, Catholics, Assembly of God, Reformed, Baptists, who get their focus off of Christ. And by the way, we should include non-denominational in there. That's us, right? We can stray from Christ, stray from grace. There are feudal ways of our forefathers— When I give our new members luncheon, we talk about the history of CCC, and I tell them a couple stories that are like the worst things that I can think of in the history of our church. And they were mistakes that we made, things that happened that tended towards legalism, and I can say that that happened but that's not who we want to be, and how we are today is a lot different than what it was like 20, 30 years ago. They were feudal ways, feudal ways. The Jews put faith in golden calves and numbers, money. And you know, in all the funerals that I've performed, it hasn't matter if the deceased was inches from being homeless or wealthy. We're all responsible to be a good steward before God, but in terms of salvation, there's only one way to redeem men and women, and that's the blood of Christ. You can be a mayor, you can be a CEO, you can have a Nobel Peace Prize, a PhD, and it doesn't matter one iota and paying for your sin before a holy God. That's the blood of Christ. We have been ransomed with the blood of Christ. Ransom is a technical term for a price paid to buy back a prisoner of war or to buy a slave's freedom. One is in bondage to sin and the domain of darkness before knowing Christ. The price to pay... For man's sin was the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Hebrew says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Think of the value of this sacrifice. Peter's giving reasons for holiness. This is a motive for staying faithful. You were formerly in bondage, but now you are redeemed by the blood of the perfect lamb of God. The ransom was not paid with precious metals like silver and gold, but rather rather with the blood of Christ, inestimable value. Christians can easily take their redemption for granted. The way to avoid this attitude is by remembering its infinite cost. You know, it's one reason we take the Lord's Supper, is it not? To remind us of the value. To remind us of the centrality of this grace that's, that's in our lives. Of his love for us. When Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, was released in Italy the review board gave it a G rating. And some parents objected, saying the movie was too violent for children to watch. But the reaction of Italian author Riccardo Zucconi, quoted in USA Today, said more about theology than it did parenting. He refused to allow his kids to watch the movie. In his words, I quote, because I want them to have this idea of the spirituality of Christ, not this idea of debauchery. The soul of Jesus is important, not his body. So the writer preferred to have his son watch a 30-minute film, The Gospel According to Matthew. He said, that film's very deep, and you don't see a drop of blood. And Zucconi planned to see the movie himself, however. He said, I think sometimes I'll shut my eyes to preserve myself from all this blood. He said, the reaction says much about the contemporary response to the crucifixion. People want the spirit of Jesus without the incarnation the death without the pain, the sacrifice without the blood. But without the body, the pain, the blood, the crucifixion crucifixion is meaningless. Sacrifice cannot be sanitized. Sacrifice has always been bloody. And that's the point. It was at great cost. And it reminds us of that cost. It reminds us of what the Son of God went through on our behalf. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. To foreknow means you're chosen beforehand that Christ died for us before the world was even created. That was the plan. His death was not some last-minute, panicked effort by God for plan B. It was not an accident or a twist of fate. Salvation was planned by God in eternity past. Demonstrated when Christ died and shed his blood on the cross. Notice he was made manifest in these last times for you. So he's personalizing the death of Christ. Just put your name in there. For you. plan of God was purposed and implemented specifically for each of us. Peter wrote originally to those who scattered because of persecution. He's encouraging them that God formulated and carried out this redemptive plan for them. They are still in God's plan. Don't forget that. When things are going awry, you're still in God's plan. And God has demonstrated that with your salvation Jesus was raised to supreme honor in his resurrection and ascension to glory. These believers are in Christ, and Christ is in them. Their hope and faith are in him, and it's true for us as well. In Ephesians it says, he's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter is wanting these persecuted believers to endure, to continue in faithfulness. It's the same message for us. The same God who allowed his son to suffer will also allow us to suffer and we share in the fellowship of his suffering. He raised Jesus to glory. He will also raise us to glory. You are redeemed. The ransomed price was the life of Jesus Christ. Because he was raised from the dead, you too can look forward with confidence to your hope. Nero was primarily responsible for the persecution of Christians during Peter's day. Nero had his mother stabbed and killed He had a wife beheaded. He kicked another to death while she was pregnant. He was a man who said yes to every fleshly passion. He made a fool of himself trying to play an instrument and sing in public. I mean, who would criticize Nero? Political turmoil finally forced troubled emperor to commit suicide. These were his last words. What a showman the world is losing in me. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, wow. Nero died clutching fame in his throne. Compare his rule with Jesus Christ who left his throne to die that others could live. He's worthy of whatever sacrifice is being asked of each of us. In a single sentence, Jorgen Moltmann expressed the great span from Good Friday to the Ascension when he said this, God weeps with us so that we may someday laugh with him. Let's pray.